You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Ashley Smiley, and you are listening to The Graduates, the interview talk show where we interact with graduate students here at UC Berkeley and around the world. Today, I am joined by Ursula Kwan Brown, a PhD candidate in the Department of Music. Ursula is a multimedia artist and composer and is currently splitting her time between New York City and Berkeley, California. Ursula, welcome to The Graduates. We are happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start out with asking you a question about your background. So I understand you have a bachelor's in music and biology from Columbia University, a master's in music composition from Berkeley, and now you're finishing up your PhD in music composition with a designated emphasis in new media. How did you transition from studying both science and music to progressing towards the current career path? So my whole life I've done music. It was never never a question whether I do music. It's just also whether I could squeeze science in as well. I really enjoyed my research at Columbia. I worked in Professor Darcy Kelly's laboratory, and she permitted me to do my own independent research into the vocalizations of African clawed frogs and Pislavis. And I heard musical intervals in the frog songs, and I got to spend like two years researching how they produced those intervals, if they perceived them. And it was incredibly fun, but it was also incredibly energy consuming and I did not have time to write music okay so I just didn't have enough time for my music and that's why I went to just music so why do you think you chose the African clawed frog what about them piqued your interest you said it was the music did you know anything about them before you started this project it was really just like a happy coincidence in that Darcy Kelly taught the neuroscience intro to neuroscience class I was taking at the time and I loved her so much that I went and like switched my summer lab research to her lab. And it just happened to be that I was listening to Frog Song in the, you know, in the lab tea room. And I was like, ah, uh, that's a perfect fourth. Like, I know what that <laughs> is. Um, yeah, it just happened. Okay, yeah, that's so cool. I actually read a publication that you were an author on that was just released in 2015, pretty recently in the Journal of Comparative Physiology. I remember reading about how some species within this genus Xenopus can actually glean information about reproductive state, species identity, and sex based on hearing these vocalizations that come from their larynx, which is this organ that produces sound pulses. Yeah, that's 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 accurate. So, you know, these frogs call underwater in murky water at night. They don't have much vision. They use sound to find their mates and they have to differentiate their calls both temporally with different interclick, inter like tick, 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 or tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. And then also um, spectrally, so in terms of pitch, some frogs have dun dun to like a pitches that are like a perfect fourth apart and then some of them have like da da but what's really cool is they actually produce those sounds harmonically mm -hmm. so they produce them at the same time um, which I can't sing for you because I can't sing two pitches at the same time but without those calls I think that you would have um, more species trying to have sex with one another when they're not mm -hmm. compatible you know yeah so it's like a it's a reproductive barrier or identifier yeah yeah 
It's interesting that you say they can produce sounds at the same time or two different sounds at the same time. So they must have musculature that can control that to like open and close parts of the larynx. Or do you think they have an additional structure, sound producing organ? Like in, for instance, in birds, birds have a syrinx. Are frogs the same way, do you think? So frogs are totally, totally different. We've actually talked with some bird song people trying to figure out how they, how the frogs make these two pitches. And it's not at all clear. We're actually just submitted a paper about this in which we worked with a really wonderful researcher named Quinn Elemans in Denmark with some high-speed video in an isolated prep of the larynx in a dish to look at the sound excitation. But basically, it's not an air-driven mechanism. Hmm. It's more like percussion. It's more like striking a metal bowl that like rings at a pitch, but it's two pitches. That is insane. So I came across this ad in Bamfa or, you know, somewhere somewhere in campus, and I was reading about your sound installation art, and if, if that's what I may call it. Sure, yeah. Um, so my understanding is that you were participating in this collaboration where you took metal sheets and then connected transducers to them and kind of propagated some type of input into those so that it could transform the sound of instruments to reverberate through these metal sheets. I guess I can't quite wrap my mind around that and like what that actually means. Could you clarify how that works? Yeah. So just imagine that the sheet, the metal sheet, or in some cases, wooden sheet, is the speaker, right? So a transducer is just a device that is converting like variations in an electrical signal into physical pressure, right? So like sound waves. So your speaker does that very well, right? It just pretty accurately, for the most part, reproduces that. But if you take like a metal sheet, there's all these like resonant frequencies in the sheet that will come out more strongly. So if you play like Beethoven's 7th through a metal sheet, you will hear Beethoven's 7th, but you'll also hear like the humming resonant frequencies of the sheet or the wood or whatever you want. And in this project, I was working with a painter and cellist named Amy Kang in New York City, and we really wanted the sounds to emanate directly from her artwork. So we wanted you to go up to the art and feel the vibrations, the music coming from her painting. So she painted metal sheets, and then I attached transducers to the back of them. So that's where the the painting came in. That's something that I completely forgot about. Those were color-coded, right? So this was a project that Amy Kang had already been doing that I had found just so beautiful. She took the Bach cello suites, very famous, and she took each note and would assign them a different color. So like C would be blue and G would be green. I mean, I'm just or something like this. And she would paint the entire prelude, for instance, in rows of single brush strokes. And because music does have a structure, you know, you would see these recurring blue notes that were the C's and you'd see the recurring green brush strokes, which were the G's, and it had this this sort of gorgeous structure inherent in it. She was inspired actually by like a treatise that Sir Isaac Newton had written about like <laughs> optics and like light and the, the continuum between the light yeah. and the sound spectrum. I see like aspects of science and engineering and physics that are combined into your work. I mean, yeah, I guess I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strong theme. I, I really appreciate it. So are you from Berkeley or are you from New York or where did you grow up? 
So I'm originally from New York. I lived there for most of my life. I also lived in Boston for high school, but I moved back to New York for college, except for a year in London when I studied at the Royal College of Music for one year. I've been in New York, and then five or six years ago now, I moved to Berkeley. But now, the last year, I've been back in New York because my fiancé is there. Um, and I'm getting ready to graduate and move back to New York for good, although I really will miss Berkeley. Yeah, I imagine. You've done so much great stuff here. I would love to get into talking more about what is your dissertation about? So my dissertation, which I recently finished, is a work for soprano and orchestra that's going to be performed either next fall or the following spring by the UC Berkeley Orchestra, which is very, very good, conducted by David Milnes with Anne Moss, the singer-soloist. You might be surprised to know that in music, you can have a dissertation without any words. (laughs) It's just music, (laughs) you know? It's a musical score. That's my dissertation. I'm so excited to hear it. So you said that your PhD has an emphasis in new media? Well, my thesis piece is, um, it doesn't actually have new media in it. It's just for soprano and orchestra. An orchestra is like a hundred-person unit which you don't want to waste rehearsal time and so yeah working with electronics can actually be quite tricky with orchestra so what I decided to do is do a separate piece that integrated okay. new media with piano so I'm a pianist and I'm actually performing a piece for prepared piano so I'm putting like magnets in the piano and pre-recorded sounds and so that's my new media piece what do you mean you're putting magnets in a piano What does that do? I mean, I'm putting little magnets on the strings and they stick to the strings, right? Because the Uh strings are metal and they create these cool like bell-like sounds. Whoa, that's really cool. (laughs) So, okay. My question is, what is a composer? Wow. What is a composer? (laughs) What are the roles of a composer? So I guess I consider a composer to be someone who organizes sounds in space. I think you can compose electronic music on your computer by rearranging pre-recorded sounds. You Mm -hmm. can also be a composer by writing things down on paper. But you're, you know, structuring time with sound. And there's a performance element, right? You're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for an audience. So then do you play some of the instruments in these composed works? Or do you you write it and then then it's out of your hands? I do both. I mean, in this case, this piano and electronics piece, I'm playing it myself. But I have to say it's really nice to be in the audience. (laughs) It's definitely easier to hear the sound balance. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you have like four channel sound with complex samples, like the samples for this piece. It's called I Should Have Taken in the train and it uses text written by a brilliant writer friend of mine hannah howard back from columbia who recently published a memoir and i am triggering these sound samples while i'm playing and so i have to have someone very good in the audience to sit and tell me the levels are correct you know Mm -hmm. so that's when it's really nice to have someone else play something so that you can sit in the audience and set the levels yeah that makes sense i noticed that you have various titles for your different pieces i was kind of curious where these titles come from and I mean my guess is that you're writing these from your own life I wanted to talk a little bit more about where those inspirations come from if you're comfortable with that of course I mean they each I would say every piece of mine has its own story its own so I have a range of titles recent pieces would be like unwinding for string quartet I actually did an unwinding two as well. Those were inspired by, I had a severe bike accident about five years ago. And afterwards I was having a lot of memory problems and severe headaches. 
And I saw a craniosacral therapist who helped, they call it unwinding. It's this process in which they sort of release the pressure on the various nerves in your head that are creating so much pain by shifting very subtly the plates of your head. It's this amazing feeling of relief and release. Mm -hmm. And so I have a couple pieces written about that process. What's another one? Sometimes they're just pulled directly from the text, like if I'm working with, with a writer. So this piece, where, where the eye comes from, that's my uh, thesis piece that's going to be performed. And it uses text by the poet Josh Bell, who teaches at Harvard. And he wrote this just lovely poem, which I guess I'll just read a couple lines from. It doesn't really do it justice. The whole poem's amazing. But here it is. Josh Bell, Where the Eye Comes From. Our days often ended and began with the sound of voices raised in song. Even after we murdered our friends and neighbors, even after we brought the attention of our knives to the neighbors of our neighbors, until at last the neighborhoods fell silent and the city's quiet and the city's city and the country then and next the country until finally the moon, as if its own reflection, looked upon an earth that we had emptied, nearly back to Eden. So I, it's a really dark and depressing and wonderful poem that I felt accurately reflected how I felt after the 2016 presidential elections. I just had a piece performed called Black and Blue, which is totally different. It's a piece for electric guitar and 15 instruments and dancers that was just performed at the Berkeley Art Museum. And Black and Blue is actually a title from a visual artist. Her name, she was a Korean artist that was originally based in Berkeley, Teresa Hakyung Cha, who um, sadly passed away when she was young. She has an amazing archive at Berkeley Art Museum. And so I took this piece of hers called Black and Blue and made my own piece out of that. That's incredible. I love how some of your works seem like they're filtering other pieces of art. Reflections on Rothko, I'm guessing, is you writing music in response to the painter's abstract expressionist art. Yeah, so that's a, a piece that I really have enjoyed performing with this violist Ellen Ruth Rose. She teaches here at Berkeley. She's an amazing violist. And in that piece, I have a live camera feed on Ellen, and her image is chroma keyed and projected against Rothko paintings. So there's like seven paintings in the piece, and so the piece is structured around those seven paintings. It starts sort of bluish. In, mm -hmm. in the middle, it's like yellow and red, and then it ends bluish again. I'm not exactly synesthetic, but I do have really strong like color associations with musical motifs. Mm -hmm. So for me, like that's a yellow idea, and it's like very <laughs> definitely yellow. Because <laughs> I mean, he has Rothko these amazing, you know, vibrant sheets, squares of color, and I find them very um, inspiring musically. What do you want your audience to take away from the stuff you share? I think each piece again, has its own genesis and its own emotional story for the 2016 election, like, I probably won't share that with the audience. Mm. Like, it's enough that they can read the poetry yeah. that spoke to me so much. The poetry is about mutual destruction and sort of how that desire for destruction is inherent in all of us. And I think the poem speaks for itself. I don't need to talk about the election, especially since that's such a polarizing topic. I'd prefer not to. 
But in a different piece, this this more recent one for piano and electronics, I should have taken the train. That one, I definitely want the audience to connect with the message behind it. It's about a friend of mine who was assaulted, and it's about her self-recrimination afterwards. You know, instead of blaming the man who assaulted her, she says repeatedly, like, I should have taken the train. Like, it was all my fault, essentially. I should have taken the train. And I think it's important for audiences to understand the mentality of young women. Um, And I think that art is a place that you can put people emotionally in the space that someone else has occupied. I definitely want my works to be emotionally moving for other people. I suppose it's in part because when I was composing when I was young, it always felt like writing diary entries. Literally, I'd be like 13, like angry at my mom. (laughs) I just like write like really angry woodwind quintet, you know? And what's nice about music is that then my mom would hear it and be like, that's an amazing woodwind quintet. Like she, (laughs) you know, music often doesn't share the source, right? It's just, you know, it's angry, it's full of energy, but you don't know what it's about. And sometimes that's really nice, not having to have the specificity of text. When did you start playing and composing? Probably when I was around seven, when I started taking piano lessons. I had a really wonderful piano teacher in New York City. Um, Her name was Kathy Eddy. And she had all of her students write music. I think it's such a good idea. Um, I recently taught piano to a little six-year-old, and he's so creative. Like, kids, when you're like, write music, they're like, okay. It's like coloring. There's yeah. no mental barriers, you know? Yeah. It's it's only later that you're like, I, can't, I couldn't write music. Like, what's, mm-hmm. you know, kids are like, fine. I'll play around on the piano, and here's my song. I mean... And also makes me think about like the question of access, because you said that when people paint or when you assign colors to music, there are clear patterns that come out. And so like if, you know, a child can paint, you know, perhaps they can also be creative with music. But who has access to to a piano when they're young or who has access to like something more affordable, like a box of crayons, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's. It's one of the tragedies of classical music right now that there's really not much diversity anywhere in the world of classical music. And I do think that that goes back to childhood. To be an orchestra violinist, most people started when they were five. I started composing when I was seven. I played a million instruments when I was young, and those have all helped me. And those are all privileges. They're all advantages that most people don't have. And so when you're trying to diversify, college is too late. You know, we have to start Mm -hmm. like a system to help kids, like young kids, become more involved and give them instruments, give them lessons, give them materials. If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley, and you're listening to The Graduates. The interview talk show where we interact with graduate students here at UC Berkeley. And today we are joined by Ursula Kwong Brown from the Department of Music. So you've performed not just here in the United States, in the Bay Area, in New York, in Chicago, but also in Europe, like Germany, London. What's the biggest difference from traveling and performing your your work in other countries versus here in the United States? What's it like traveling for work? Well, it's wonderful traveling to these foreign countries and immediately having this small group of friends with common interests. New Music World is actually quite small. I was in Darmstadt, Germany in 2014 in some tiny town and oh, I ran into a friend that I'd met three years ago in France and I mean that's just what happens and Mm -hmm. then I ran into someone I knew from California and then I mean these gatherings just pull people from all over the world so I think you feel at home wherever you are 
in terms of differences between Europe and the United States, public funding is, is a huge one. Um, when I was in London at the Royal College of Music in London, I remember that people weren't nervous about going to music the same way my friends at Juilliard were. There had recently been an article in the New York Times about Juilliard students selling their instruments to pay their rent. And it's actually not uncommon for Juilliard musicians to leave music because they can't afford to stay. Whereas in London, healthcare is guaranteed. So you have to pay rent. You can always crash on someone's couch, right? It's not the same fear of losing healthcare that drives people towards other jobs. That's so interesting to hear coming from, from STEM, music versus integrative biology, where, where I'm at. There's a lot of similar anxieties in terms of funding and access to resources that you may need. And also just early science education makes a huge difference in getting a more representative representative population in science. There are issues with diversity and inclusion and they're systemic. And I, I mean, I see that in science. I'm interested in figuring out a way to address these issues and make them more transparent and also like more available to the public to consider. Yeah, I mean, I, w I wish I had the answer. I, I do feel like, you know, taxing the rich slightly more and giving more money to the arts um, and also to, you know, STEM education and all these things would be a really wonderful first step. I guess I would encourage people to compose and especially encourage parents to have their kids compose music. I feel like in our society, there's this like mental barrier everyone has like, oh, I can't write music. Everybody can write music. Seriously. Like, listen <laughs> I to don't some... know about that. I no, mean... <laughs> but listen to contemporary music. It often sounds like scribbling. Like you can uh -huh. do that. Like you don't have to write Beethoven music. You can mm -hmm. write whatever sounds you want. It's just organizing sounds in space. So if it's something that interests you at all, like do it. Um, and I guess I say that in part because I just wish there were more women composers. I feel like there aren't enough. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and what I meant earlier about being skeptical about writing music, where do you get the tools that you need to know how to write music? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, one, one way that I've seen done in, in some public school outreach programs is using color maps, like energy maps. You know, you ask a group of kids, like, how do you show something's loud? And generally someone shouts out, like, red. And, like, does it, should it be, a, like, you know, if it's a jagged sound, do you want it to be a circle or, like, a triangle? triangle you know yeah. so you can just start assigning colors and shapes to different textures that's really cool never thought about that before I mean harmonically it is a little more complex and I think mm -hmm. that's where like taking lessons when you're young <laughs> is really helpful yeah okay yeah you mentioned earlier you have a upcoming performance either sometime this fall or next spring and that one is where the eye comes from yes and that's for soprano and orchestra with text by Josh Bell. So that one was going to be performed by the UC Berkeley Symphony with Anne Moss. So listeners can stay tuned for the final date and time. And that one's going to be your... That's my thesis piece. Yeah, that's my dissertation. <laughs> so exciting. I wanted to ask the final question, and I wanted to ask if you feel there are any issues that the general public should be thinking about. This is what we call the soapbox section. I feel like the Bay Area could really benefit from more racial diversity in the art scene, particularly the classical music scene, and even within that, the new music classical scene is just some of the least diverse concerts I've ever been to in my life. 
it makes me uncomfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why, because the people are all very nice. It's never a personal question. I feel like it's something structural that has to change. We have to make some tickets cheap or free and subsidize that with raising more money from donors, right? Or... We just have to program slightly different music, like mix new music with some music that would be attracted like a new audience, essentially. Yeah, I think that, you know, you're not alone in this mentality and you're not solely responsible for offering solutions to these issues. And I feel this sentiment coming not just from you and the the music department, you know, across the board at, at Cal Berkeley and in the Bay Area. And part of the show is starting the conversation on how to have these discussions and introduce these topics of concern to the public. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I guess even apart from the public performances, the university, we could do a much better job of pulling in diverse students into our ensembles. I mentioned we have a wonderful orchestra. It's not very diverse. We have a wonderful choir. It's also not diverse. There are ways to go out and find students that we want to be in those ensembles. Instead, we're just waiting for people to come to us. And if people feel like they're not welcome in an environment because nobody looks like them there, they're never going to come. I think it's on us to go find diversity and bring it in. Yeah, I completely agree with you. On that note, it looks like we are out of time, unfortunately. But as a reminder to the listeners, be sure to look out for Ursula's upcoming performances in the Bay Area. And the final performance composed by Ursula in the Bay Area. Well, I don't think it's going to be the final Where the eye comes from. (laughs) Where the eye comes from. So be sure to look that up. And it will be performed by the UC Berkeley Symphony. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ursula, and sharing both your stories and your work with the listeners. Thank you. Thank you.